one long sentence in the Greek. So we'll start reading in Ephesians chapter 1. Starting in verse 3. This is God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. The Apostle Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to in, unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of his will, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. If it sounds like a mouthful, it is. It's, imagine it all in the Greek as one just straight sentence the title of today's sermon is Our Inheritance in Christ. And over the last couple of weeks, the Apostle Paul has been pulling back the veil just ever so slightly, giving us a, a, just a tiny glimpse into the riches of God's grace and his glorious plan of salvation. And what he's been praising God for is all of these magnificent promises that God has made for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Paul begins in verse 3 by praising the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And then in verses 4 to 14, he begins just listing them off. In verse 4, he blesses God the Father who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. By God's sovereign election, those who are saved or placed in this eternal union with Christ before creation ever took place. Wrap your mind around that. In verse 5, he adopted us as sons. First son received the inheritance. As sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Then Paul turns to the work of God the Son in verse 7. He redeemed us through his blood, forgiving us of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he 
lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. In verse 9, he's even made known to us the mystery of his will, speaking here of, of one united church, a Jew and Gentile together as one body, as Christ as the head, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And of course, Christ came the fullness of time. And, and ultimately, when that fullness of time comes, he will bring all things together into one great harmonious union with himself forever. That's where we ended last week in verse 10. And so it's, it's no wonder why Paul is so full of praise. I mean, really. And, and so that was the, the first two sections, verses 3 to 10 that we've covered the last two weeks today. We come to verses 11 to 14 as we turn to this final section of Paul's praise as we see the work of God the Holy Spirit who seals us in Christ as is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it eternally to the praise of his glory. And so you'll see on the back of your bulletin I've put our, our verses under two easy headings for us. And remember, this is all the same sentence that, that Paul started all the way back in verse 3. And so we need to remember that Paul is still praising God. And, and the next blessing that he's praising God for is, number one, that he gives us an inheritance. He gives us an inheritance. In verse 11, we read that we have obtained an inheritance. And then in verse 14, we see it listed there as well. But in verse uh, 11, I want you to notice first the source. The, the source of our inheritance. And as verse 11 begins, Paul once again uses that prepositional phrase, in him. You see it 12 or 13 times based on your translation in chapter 1 alone. In him, in Christ, in him. Once it's in the beloved. And that phrase refers to Jesus Christ, who is in view in verse 9, he's mentioned, and, and referenced there in verse 10. Now this inheritance you will not find at a bank. Uh, you will not find hidden away in some dropbox or, or safe. It is only found in Jesus Christ. Okay? In fact, to be without Christ is to be left in a state of spiritual bankruptcy who has nothing and who owes a debt that on your own you could never repay. But to be in Christ is to obtain a, a, a vast inheritance that encompasses all of the treasures of his grace that Christ alone deposits into your account. These spiritual blessings are bestowed only on those who are in Christ for as Acts 4 12 tells us there is salvation in no one else, for there is no, one, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So first we notice the source of our inheritance. To inherit what, what Christ gives, we must be in him, in Christ. Second, I want you to notice the grace of our inheritance. The grace. Notice what it says next in verse 11. In him we have obtained and inheritance. Notice this inheritance we have not worked for. Um, this is inheritance that we have not earned or that's been passed down through our family line. In fact, this inheritance we don't even deserve. 
We have simply obtained it by his grace. Ephesians, to just to stay in the, in the same book, uh, verses obviously very familiar to us, states it clearly and plainly. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this grace, this, this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's the, the gift of God. Why? Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. And yet we have churches every Sunday from the pulpit boasting about how I earned my salvation. How it is my salvation. It was up to me and my decision. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 13 through 14, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And then the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 14. Great verse. And then, of course, what did Paul just get done telling us in verses 4 through 10? God the Father chose you. God the Son redeemed you. And as we'll see, God the Spirit sealed you as the guarantee of our inheritance. And so it was all of his grace, beloved. All of his grace. Now, the five-word phrase, we have obtained an inheritance, is all one word in the Greek. And it's in a passive form, which basically means that it can be translated in two ways here, both which are, are true and consistent with, with Scripture. And, and here's the first way it could be translated. In him... We have been made an inheritance. And there's some scholars who, who believe that that is the best way to, to translate it. In Christ, we have been made an inheritance. And this would indicate that Christ inherited us. Now, it could be saying that. And, you know, that is true. Jesus repeatedly spoke of believers as being Love gifts from the Father. Listen to Jesus' own words in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And so in that sense, we are the Son's inheritance from the Father. We're just wrapped up in this love gift between the Father and the Son. The Father shows you in heaven. He gives you back to the Father. And as we saw last week, it, it is through his blood, that, that sacrificial death on Calvary, that, that it was Christ that redeemed us, right? He purchased us out of that slave market of sin. Jesus won us at Calvary. We are his. We are the spoils of his victory over Satan in death, and we now belong to Christ. The Lord says in Malachi 3.17, they shall be mine in that day when I make them a treasured possession. And so that is one way it could be translated. In him we have been made an inheritance. Think of it as a love gift from the Father to the Son. However, translated the other way, the word means the exact opposite as we just plainly read it here in the text. It is the believers who receive this inheritance and 
And I think that is what Paul is speaking about here. Um, we have another uh, perfect example of it from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, where, where Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Okay? And so, while both translations are grammatically and theologically legitimate, the second translation is more appropriate in the context here, as Paul's emphasis is that in Christ we have obtained this, this great inheritance. Now, before we move on, let me tell you what this inheritance, this word inheritance actually means, because as I mentioned, it's, it's a um, rather hard word to translate it. We've translated it into five words. It's one word in the Greek, and this is, on top of it, the only place it's even found in all of the New Testament. It's the only time it's used. But let me tell you what it means, because I think it will really enlarge the richness of our understanding of this. It's the Greek word chloreto, and it means to appoint by lot to appoint by lot. And it's the idea of casting lots, believing that God is sovereignly in control. Okay? In fact, you might remember this is how the apostles replaced Judas, one of the twelve, in Acts chapter 1, verse 26. They cast lots as his replacement. We also see in texts like uh, Proverbs 16, 33, which says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So for the believer, casting lots wasn't like throwing dice, hoping to get a Yahtzee. Okay? They believed that the Lord was sovereignly revealing to them his decision. And that's why if you have an NIV, Ephesians 1 verse 11 is transferred totally differently. You have in him we were also chosen. And, of course, the word chosen was used synonymously to mean cast by lot or pointed by lot. So verse 11 could also be translated, in him we have attained an allotment, speaking of one's inheritance. And that's really the idea of what it means, as we'll see later on in the verse, that speaks of being predestined by God. And so the idea is we who are in Christ have been sovereignly chosen by God to obtain this inheritance according to his purpose. Now as we go through the rest of this verse, Paul shows us the, the divine perspective first. Later we'll see more of the human side. But we notice first the divine perspective. And so continuing in verse 11 he says, Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to to the counsel of his will. Wow, <laughs> that's a lot to unpack there. Let's start with that first word, predestined. Having been predestined according to his purpose. So the word predestined really carries the idea of the destination is determined before the journey begins. Okay? It's the compound word prohorizo pro in the Greek, and it means to mark out the boundaries beforehand. In the horizon, you can see horizon. To mark out the boundaries before him. That means very simply that before you ever existed, before you were even conceived, 
God had already marked out the boundaries of your final destination. And in case you're not sure about that, listen to what the Apostle Paul said when he was preaching to a group of pagans in Athens who, um, when he walked through the, the city, were worshiping at an idol. And, and he walks by the idol and there's an inscription on it that reads, to an unknown God, to an unknown God. And I, I, I want to read this to you. You could turn there if you want, Acts chapter 17. This is uh, Paul's response as looking around the city, he says to the people, let me tell you about the God I know, personally. Notice his description. He says in Acts 17, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. Now listen to what he says next. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. One of my favorite sections of verses, and really just one verse, but we'll say in four verses, Paul presents God as being sovereign over all his creation. All of it. He's marked out exactly when you would be born, where you would be born, and for how long your appointed time on earth was. Every breath of air that you breathe comes from God. He's numbered the days that you live, also see in Psalms 139, verse 16. He's even numbered the hairs on your head. Matthew 10, 30. Even yours, Tom. And then, remember last week, we read Acts 2, 23, where... We see Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost to his Jewish brethren, and he says, this Jesus, delivered over for, for crucifixion, he means, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And there again, you have divine predetermination as well as human responsibility, right there. And, and this is the tension between God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility. God sovereignly predetermined it to happen, yet godless men were held responsible because you killed them, but God raised them. If it was God's predetermined plan, why are they held responsible for doing what they did, you might ask? Well, obviously, God predetermined the death of his son as an atoning sacrifice for sinners, yes. But the fact that God predetermined that doesn't justify the hatred of evil man's hearts and the rejection from the people who had Jesus killed. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And 
We've covered this topic at length many times, but suffice to say, that's the meaning of predetermined. Per Horizo, God sovereignly marked out the boundaries before anything in this world ever took shape. In Christ, then, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we are who we are because of what God took us before any man was ever created. For as Paul has already established, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He is the one, verse 11, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then that word counsel here refers to God's own specific plans as he counsels with himself. While his will here refers more to do with his own desires. So God here is working everything out according to his own desires, according to his own specific plans, which expresses the will of God. And now God is working in time and history, bringing it all to pass exactly how he has planned it. That's how this inheritance became yours if you are a child of God. Romans 11 verse 34 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? And then down in verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. You see, God doesn't need any counseling. He doesn't need to seek anyone for advice. God doesn't call upon anyone else to get their insight as to how something should happen. No, God is working all things according to the counsel of his own sovereign will. Now, to consider this for a moment before we could go on, I just try to go back to eternity past for a moment. And I just want you to enter into the, the, the inner sanctum of, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Before the foundations of the world had been laid, before the, the universe and the galaxies and the stars and the planets came dripping off the, the fingers of God, but before any of the angels were created, when there was only God himself, the triune God, just pause there for a moment looking at him see him in all of his glory and majesty see him working all of creation out in his infinite wisdom and the detail according to the counsel of his will and allow yourself to see this vast inheritance the Lord has in all the riches of his grace which he has said that he has lavished upon you and it's all in his sovereign purposes. It's not something that just accidentally fell into your lap. It's what God had purposed and planned before all of creation. It's all of his grace. It's not based on anything that you have done. It is simply because God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have 
been saved. And just pause there for a moment. And let your mind really ponder this. Let your heart be amazed by this. Let your soul be overwhelmed by this with gratitude and thanksgiving. Let that just flood over you. That this God from before time began sovereignly predestined to place his undeserved, unmerited kindness and favor upon you. And now, thank God. Praise Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. This great thing he has done. The greatest thing he has done. Next, I want you to notice the goal of our inheritance. The goal. Notice in verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. All of this ultimately is to the praise of God's glory. That's his purpose in all of this, that God would be glorified. That there would be such awe and such astonishment and such amazement within our own hearts that we would feel compelled to ascribe to God who has gracefully enriched us in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice also in verse 12, there's an important distinction here that I was shocked. Almost all of the commentators I read completely missed. So go with caution. But let me suggest this to you. Is I think this is pretty plain. Notice how Paul refers to himself and those he's, who he's writing to in verse 12. He says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. What's he mean, we, who were the first to hope in Christ? Well, the gospel came first to the Jew and then also to the Greek. That's why in verse 13, Paul also says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. See the distinctions? We and you. We and you. Paul says we, then he says you. Now up to this point, he's addressed all unbelievers generally, and he's included all of us in every statement that he's made. But he's making a distinction now, I believe, that actually illustrates an aspect of the mystery that he mentioned earlier in verse 9. Remember, God is making known to us the mystery of his will, and we learn the mystery is the church, the Jew and Gentile becoming one church under Christ, one body. God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. This was all a part of his plan. The gospel would go out first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, who were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 2. This was us. This was me. But now, Ephesians 2, verse 13. Now, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you, you Gentiles, you who were once far off, have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both groups into one, 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself, notice, one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God. Look, in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so, in light of this truth, we see in verse 12, Paul's pointing out this, this plan of redemption is coming together. And, and though Ephesus was primarily a Gentile church, there was always a remnant of Jewish believers scattered throughout Asia Minor. And so Paul recognizes in verse 12 that, that this dividing wall of hostility that has existed has been knocked down by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So whether Jew or Gentile, we give praise to God for his mercy. That's his purpose in all of this, that God would be glorified, that God would be praised for this great thing that he has done, that there would be such amazement within our hearts. He's delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of our sins that we would feel compelled to praise God and to bless God every day of our life who has graciously given us this great inheritance so not only do we praise God for giving us an inheritance but secondly we praise God because he seals us with his Holy Spirit. He seals us with his Holy Spirit. Notice verses 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We Gentiles have also been included in God's eternal plan of salvation. As verse 13 says in him, you also, when you heard, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hope in Christ was not reserved just for the Jews, but his mercy and grace was extended to us as well. We, verse 13, we, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Then we are included in the family of God and have become his children. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit, receiving the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Though you were chosen in the Father before the foundation of the world, predestined for adoptions as sons 
Notice here how salvation is applied in time and space. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him. Let me make this very simple as far as election and predestination and believing. You cannot be a true believer without believing. Okay? Simple, right? The gospel is preached and God's elect will respond by faith to the word of truth. John chapter 8. 31 through 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will abide connected into the vine, obey, follow, Those who will be saved respond to the word of truth, the gospel. They are set free from their bondage to sin. The scales of blindness caused by the lies of Satan have fallen off and their eyes are open to see the light. They believe Jesus' claims of who he is and what he's done and they put their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone and are eternally forgiven. Paul has a little bit of a fuller explanation of this in Romans chapter 10, 8 through 15, which might help our evangelism as well, where he says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Therefore, beloved, we are not only the the chosen of God, we must understand also we are the commissioned and the sent of God. You are now God's chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God chose us in eternity past, but the reality of that choice came into time when you heard the word of truth of gospel of your salvation and believed in him. Now, 
Paul continues in verse 13 to state the next great blessing from God. Notice, you, after believing in Christ, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. We will look at God's promise and, and what our inheritance actually is in a moment. But, but first, let's just look more closely at what it means to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. This seal is yet another assurance that, that God will carry out his promises. That God is faithful. That you can trust God. Our first assurance is simply that God said it. And while we cannot trust man, as man has let us down, and so we make him swear in court and sign affidavits and give us warranties, etc. as a means to make sure what the person has said will actually come true. Well, Numbers 23, 19 tells us God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it? good well let me tell you something this is just how gracious our good lord is beyond his trusted word he also gives us his seal and for a very long time a seal was actually used by dripping wax onto an object and then making a designed impression into the wax and sealing the envelope say um, with the king's signet um, ring. Today we still see seals attached to pieces of paper out of plastic and, and metals and, and such bearing an emblem uh, to the object. Our, our signature is a type of seal. Uh, a seal is an official mark of identification and could be used in several ways. It could signify security, authenticity, ownership, and authority. When a seal is placed on a letter or a document, it is an authenticating mark of origin. In a similar way, the Holy Spirit is the authenticating sign of the origin of our promises from God. You cannot duplicate the work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot fraudulently produce his fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A, a seal on a document also designates ownership. Ownership. The book of Jeremiah, a real estate transaction is described there. And after the full payment was made, the, the deed to the property was properly witnessed, being signed, and then it was sealed and delivered to Jeremiah. And, and, and the sealed deed represented his ownership to a piece of land. In a similar way, when God sealed you in him, in the Holy Spirit, he designated that you belong to him. You are now his child. No ifs, ands about it. A seal could also ensure security. When Jesus died and was buried, the Jewish leaders were concerned someone might come and night at steal away Jesus's body so they had Pilate set a seal on the tomb and to place guards outside of it and the seal represented the the full power of the Roman government and the guard to break that seal would invite the full power of, of Rome to come against you 
that very seal became an authenticating factor proving the resurrection for no man would have dared broken that seal. In a similar way, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You belong to God and are secure in him. The devil sure may still accuse, make false claims, and sin may entice you, but you now belong to God. And as Jesus said in John 10, 21, 10, 29, no one is able to snatch him out of the Father's hand. Jesus says, I will lose none of them and I will raise them up on the last day. You are secure in him. And then finally, a seal represented the authority of the one making the decree. So when a king made and set his seal on a decree, he gave him full authority of that decree to be carried out. Your signature on a check is a seal. And with that, that signature, you authorize the bank to then transfer your money to the person that you wrote the check to. God has set his seal of the Holy Spirit on you and given you the authority to serve him according to the graces that he has gifted you with. Now, how does one get sealed with the Holy Spirit? He is given to you when you believe in Jesus Christ. There's the charismatic movement, which has caused all confusion about the second blessing and the second baptism and baptism with fire and la-di-da-da-da. But the scriptures are very clear. Jesus' promise to the disciples that the Holy Spirit would be sent, that he must return to the Father and the Spirit would come, he said in John 16. Acts 2 records the Holy Spirit's arrival and pouring out on the day of Pentecost upon all who believed. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit. Nobody's less than, no one's less equipped than the next. We are uniquely equipped, but you all have the same Spirit of God. You don't become a part of the body of Christ without the Holy Spirit. How about we put that down? <laughs> Just in case that's not clear enough, please listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. It is simple, it is clear. You do not have the Holy Spirit, you do not belong to Christ, you do not belong to Christ, you are not saved. Plain and simple. Then, how do I become one with Christ? By believing the message of truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ that was pointed out earlier. John also points out clearly in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, the one who believes, verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. If you have the Son, you have his Holy Spirit, and you are saved. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have him, and you are still dead and lost in your sins. 
Lastly, the Holy Spirit also brings another level of security for us. Verse 14 points out he is the guarantee of our inheritance. A guarantee or a pledge is a payment made, a non-refundable deposit or, or a first payment. It was given as a guarantee of the final purchased item. The Holy Spirit is the down payment, the, the non-refundable deposit. That guarantees God will carry out his promises towards us. And we will receive his inheritance, beloved. Now, just real quickly as we close, what, what, what inheritance? I would say we inherit Christ. We inherit Christ. But there's a lot more than that he promises. Eternal life, 1 John 5, 13. No second death, Revelation 20. Not just existence, but life which includes purpose and meaning. Jesus says, I have given you life and life abundantly, life to the full. For the here and now, we are going to receive a new non-corruptible glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15, 10 through 54. It will be like Jesus' body, 1 John 3, 2. We will eternally dwell with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father's house, John 14, 1 through 4, Revelation. Eternal dwelling in heaven, a place without no more mourning and crying or pain, Revelation 21, verse 4. Without any more evildoers or sin or corruption, Revelation 21, 8. A place of extreme beauty, read Revelation 21. A place where God's favor dwells, Matthew 25, 34. And the eternal purposes and serving God. Quite an inheritance. And we will receive it because we are sealed in him by the Holy Spirit and that is God's pledge to us. Praise God. Praise God. If you need prayers this morning, I want to invite you to please come forward as we sing the song of invitation. Thank you.